Welcome to the holiday special of the Struggling Scientist podcast. We are a podcast by scientists, for scientists, anybody science adjacent, and perhaps even hobbyist. My name is Susanna, and this is my co-host, Jerome. Hi. And today, we have even more podcasting scientists. We decided to ask Dr. Yo Asway and Anna Sway to do a Christmas crossover with us. They are the podcast hosts of the Grad School Confessional podcast based in Canada. And we're going to be talking about the differences between doing a PhD in Canada or in the Netherlands. Well, welcome, guys. Hello. Hello. Very How's it going, welcome eh? to our uh, little podcast. Um, now, we like to avoid those sometimes very awkward introductions that you often see at congresses, where we pretend to know you by um, just our two minutes Google search. <laughs> so instead, <laughs> we would like to ask you, who are you and what would you like our listeners to know about you? Who yeah. are you? Why are you on this recording? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a two-minute Google search wouldn't find much about us, to be honest. I'm so. actually terrified. Please don't Google me. Oh, yeah, I guess you get a lot of the fencing stuff. You get my entire, like, alternate life. Oh, yeah, your past life, your past life. Yeah, really. um, so I'm Dr. Yosue. I did my PhD at Western University in Canada, um, and now I'm doing my postdoc at the University of Victoria. I did... I guess I still continue to do health behavior change as my main sort of focus of research. Um, but my other passion is just kind of uh, crapping on academia and kind of just like <laughs> how, you know, a lot of the things that I think from the outside seem really um, uh, like this like bastion of knowledge and then of nobility and then such a noble pursuit are really just, you know, the framework is just rotten. Well said. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I am Anna's way, and I'm not a doctor yet. I am just a candidate. Hopefully, I will defend this May. And my doctoral research is in field of medical sociology. And my other research interests are all in digital health and digital health sociology. Um, so I'm kind of all over the place. Um, and I'm supposed to read this out loud that I'm here completely voluntarily. Mm -hmm. I was free will and volition. Uh, yeah, I wasn't coerced into being your co-host <laughs> for so long. That's good. That's good. Okay. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. Well, it's really nice uh, to meet both of you. Um, so you guys are the hosts of the Grad School Confessional podcast. So why? What happened? Where did things go wrong? <laughs> <laughs> Where did things go wrong? You know, Anna and I have had I think very different grad school experiences. Like for the most part, I would look back on my, you know, master's experience and PhD experience. And I would say it was like really good. I thought it was, it's been very like formative in a positive way for me. But that being said, you know, I still noticed that a lot of the people I knew and a lot of the things that were happening in grad school were not what people I think expected going into it. Certainly not I as a first gen grad student. And so, you know, I think just trying to shed light on this and just hearing about other people's stories and wanting to, you know, shed light on their stories was really important to me. Yeah. And I can't think about uh, my master's experience without first taking like a Xanax. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and then I was also in the proximity of Yoma when he was starting <laughs> this podcast as we were doing, like, we're still having like a partial COVID lockdown. Um, and that's how I ended up being your co-host. Well, I mean, I really like you. So you, know, you had a much needed breath of fresh air. And also your experience, I think, has been so, like, it's so 
it's so different from mine in the sense that yours was kind of awful that <laughs> it like it makes a nice contrast. So you're like, I came out as a functional early career researcher, and I'm like, I'm gonna need years of therapy. <laughs> So, so her experience is awful, but you're you're the one crapping on academia. You know what? I think you don't have to have a shit experience to be able to <laughs> crap on academia necessarily. Yeah, in Yo's defense, he was there for the crap master's experience, so he got the trauma by proxy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Secondhand PTSD. You know how like service dogs don't live as long because you got that oh wow i have to say it's also a little bit like that with us i still really much enjoy the phd that i'm doing and jaron doesn't as much like i've gone into the abyss <laughs> yeah <laughs> so it's like industry for you afterwards that eh? hard yes yes so so like what happened because i i mean i will assume that you went into the phd young and hopeful and now you're young and less hopeful, hopeful. <laughs> less hopeful. <laughs> um yeah along the way uh just some things about academia that i didn't enjoy and the yeah. repeat experiments over and over and yep. over again mm, yeah. that did still not work at a certain point impact factors just didn't do it for me <laughs> <laughs> you got to think with the impact factor on your life yeah. you know yes well, we are really happy that you decided to join us today and we can recommend everybody to definitely listen to your podcast too. It's a bit different than ours, right? You mainly focus on the stories and confessionals from PhDs. Yeah, yeah. I think our original idea was to do like SciComm, um, where kind of like similar to what you guys do, we kind of take a topic and we take a dive into it. But I think we noticed there wasn't really a lot on like the grad school experience. Uh, specifically, there wasn't a lot kind of shedding light on some of the more, I suppose, not so savory aspects of grad school. Um, and so that's really what we wanted to do is just kind of create a platform for uh, you know grad students and former grad students to kind of say these things about grad school that they wouldn't otherwise be able to. It's really a tale as old as time. We wanted to create an anonymous mode for people to bitch about how <laughs> shit their grad experience is. I also swear a lot and I apologize. <laughs> Oh, that's fine. Yeah. We'll yeah. It <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, but we don't do anything anonymous, so it's it's definitely a bit different. And yeah, interesting. I think to listen to both of them. Mm -hmm. and yeah, I think. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was actually wondering how many of these stories are secretly just you. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> what a surprise story! I, I actually think, in all reality, we've shared maybe. No, none of the stories have been us. Yeah, none of this. Only, no. only the one, the one episode, because, but that was the entire episode was like my story. Oh, and yeah. And we were like pretty upfront about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't even remember what that was about. It was the one where I was late and then Harry like, <laughs> 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 uh, anyway, but yeah, no, it's actually, the reception has been really good. Like people really seem to tell us that they relate a lot to the stories um, and that it's kind of their experience or like it kind of prepares them for what they might expect or what they should look out for. So in that sense, it's been it's been really rewarding. People like to bitch about the experiences. Yes. And what better Christmas gift can we give our listeners than a whole other podcast to listen to? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. 
Uh, for our listeners, perhaps you guys can briefly summarize what your podcast is all about. Um, so our podcast is really about, of course, our PhD experience, but also about just science topics that we find really interesting. As you said, we are biomedical scientists that are more in the biochemistry field, but sometimes our own research topics become a bit boring. <laughs> no, not necessarily boring, but just too much of the same thing. And then you just want to spread out into something else. So we use our podcast as a good excuse to look into different scientific topics. And um, we also talk about our PhD experiences, of course, and we invite different uh, people to our podcast to talk about science and fun, fun, fun science. That's the main thing. We want to bring the fun back to, to the science experience. <laughs> like Bill Nye. <laughs> Bill Nye, the science. Do you guys have Bill Nye? Do you guys know Bill Nye? We're, we're going to grow uh, grow to that at some point, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay, okay. I don't have Bill Nye. How did you even get into science? Well, I mean, I saw him on Discovery Channel, at least. Uh, oh, okay. 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 Oh, my gosh. Yeah, yeah but that's that. cheating, Jaron. You grew up in Aruba. Yeah, close to the U.S. and uh, Canada, I guess. So close enough that I can oh, still wow. that's pick up. Cool. Uh, I don't even know what you're talking about. Wait, seriously? Then you don't know who Bill Nye is? No. I'm not explaining it at all. <laughs> She's like the biggest hype man for a Bill Nye right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so definitely listen to him. Like he's basically in grade school in Canada. We would have these days where they would roll in a TV, like in you know, the old CRT TVs, and we would just the teacher would put in a VHS tape of Bill Nye the Science Guy. And that would be science class. And honestly... Okay, first, Bill Nye is this guy who was actually guy. a science guy. <laughs> but he would do cool experiments and explain, like, nature and stuff to you in, like, a really accessible way. And so all the kids got super into science because they just thought it was about pouring stuff into beakers and watching it explode. <laughs> and then you realize... In real life, when that happens, you're actually doing it wrong. <laughs> but yeah, Bill and I basically got a generation of kids to buy into the dream of academia. <laughs> well, science, I think. Yeah, yeah. STEM. Well, I um, guess we found our first difference between Canada and the Netherlands then, huh? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, so a question for you guys. Where does the name struggling scientist come from? Actually, Jaron came up with it. We were trying to come up with something that sounded not too negative, but still somewhat negative. <laughs> <laughs> Realistic is the word. Realistic. Oh, yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> um, what is it? It reminds me because there's this chart that I was showing Anna the other day, and it's like the four levels of like kind of stress and where you are. And so the first one, like the green level. Oh, because we were trying to figure out whether we were dying or not. Yeah, yeah, whether we were dying or not. And so the first level is thriving. And that's where you're like, okay, you're being challenged, but you can like meet the challenges. And then the next one down is uh, surviving, which is like, okay, like you're, you're kind of starting to feel the stress a bit, but you're, you're still managing. And then the one below that is struggling. And <laughs> that's kind of where like things are starting to go downhill, right? And then the last one is, I think, crisis or something. <laughs> That sounds pretty it's accurate, just... yes. <laughs> <laughs> Where are you guys at? Still struggling or maybe doing a little bit better? Well, I think the struggle is also part of the science. It always, it always is a struggle. <laughs> Otherwise, you're not doing it right. <laughs> I suppose so, yeah. Otherwise, other people would have already discovered it, you know? Yeah. The struggle's baked in. <laughs> uh, one of the super cool things about Susanna and Jaren's podcast is that we've gotten to see their cast grow and our cast grow together 
kind of like two kids in the same class in grade school. Except your class is across the Atlantic and is also a completely different class from ours, which is also incidentally the topic of today's episode, which is differences between Canadian and European PhD experiences. Outside of Bill Nye, the science guy. Outside of Bill Nye, the science guy, obviously. Which, you know, already kind of puts Canada up at a one. So i got to be honest, <laughs> you guys got to start, like, you know, coming up with some pretty cool stuff. Yes. Uh, okay, yeah. So, like, from here, I guess we can just kind of get into it. So, so what are some of the differences, do you feel? Like, let's just say generally the university education you receive um, in, you know, the Netherlands versus, you know, I guess we can talk about ours. Yeah. So, of course... It comes with a bit of a disclaimer that all we know about Canada or America or anything like that is really TV-based also. <laughs> so there will probably... <laughs> I assume all of you have like seven PhDs. Uh... Yes, exactly. <laughs> and uh, you guys also have no work-life balance. That's that's what I know about <laughs> your side that's of the accurate. world. That's 100% fair. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, there will probably be some things that I think are different or we think that are different that are completely untrue. but. From what I've heard, our science education might already, our university education might indeed already be a bit different. So we first have a bachelor's of three years and then a master of two years, but you don't already start your PhD or your, yeah, your career in those master times because it's really only internships, sometimes one, sometimes two of six months where you just help your PhD student that supervises you. Um, out in the lab and you learn uh, how to work in the lab and how to do things. So I think that's a bit different, right? Because... Yeah, no, definitely. Like, so what you're saying, Suzanne, is that as a master's student, you're really just helping the PhDs. Like, you're not really kind of getting into your own project or your own research. A little bit, but it's not like you're going to publish that. If that happens, then you're very, 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 very lucky. So you're usually just helping out with a project that's already ongoing or a side project of the PhD student that's just interesting to look at. But yeah, so you're you're just an RA. You're just like a research assistant then. Mm, Yes and no, but you know less. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, are you getting paid while you're doing this? No, 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 no. Internships are, are free. Caveat though, it does depend. So if you do your internship at a company, they they do sort of pay you a little bit uh, for doing it there. But uh, that's really hard to get into. Yes, definitely. But if you just do it in the lab, no, you're free labor. (laughs) You know, as somebody coming to the end of her PhD, I'm thinking, man, it would have been so nice to have a couple of masters to help me out. (laughs) Like both of us, we're kind of like we're in the healthcare. I mean, not healthcare. We're in the health health field. Yeah. Health field. Um, but our research is outside of the lab, and so we're um, you know, I ran some experiments, and I just generally like talk to a bunch of people about their experiences. Um, and so if we didn't really like have an internship or a period of time where somebody was like, "Hey, you need to learn to do this the proper way." There's very specific skills that are associated with working in this environment. My <laughs> Me learning to interview people was like, well, your first two interviews are going to be garbage. So just <laughs> learn as you go. And they were, they were so bad. Oh. Yeah, I have to say, I also now have, have a, um, a master student that I am supervising. And I do take that very seriously because, I mean, you're responsible for educating a person to be ready for a PhD, basically. Mm-hmm. That's a lot, because are you ever really ready for a PhD? <laughs> oh, God, no, definitely not. So, but then, 
does your supervisor like is that less work for them to then quote unquote supervise the master student? My PI, you mean my professor? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, we have meetings with him uh, quite often. I have to say, he's quite an available professor, which is really nice. Um, but he doesn't help her out on a daily basis in the lab or anything. That's my job. But of course, we are very, uh, very much like lab experiments based. So we're full time busy in the lab with experiments, and she needs to learn how to how to do all of that. So that's basically my task. And uh, right. there is very little, um, well, research online or whatever, or at home. We are very excited to be able to introduce you to our new sponsor, Jenny AI. Not only does Jenny make our podcast possible, it also makes our life as scientists so much easier. Jenny is an all-in-one writing assistant that has everything that we have been missing in other AI tools. Yes, first off, unlike other AI tools, it actually finds accurate information in papers and cites its sources. It does not make things up and only uses real verified information that you can then also check the source of. Second, it's a writing assistant trained for academic papers and helps you write your paper by suggesting the next sentence or the end of your sentence. Or, if you get really stuck, you can ask it to write an entire paragraph, completely removing the writer's block I so often struggle with when I don't know the right words to make my point. It helped me write an introduction to a paper I've been struggling with in half an hour. It even suggests which papers to cite. You can add your own library or search the entire internet for papers. Just type the add symbol to easily add a reference and it gets automatically added to the reference list. And the last thing we absolutely love is that it has an AI chatbot that can see your document and give feedback on how to improve your manuscript. Or you can ask it questions, such as what are the potential therapeutic benefits of dot dot dot, and it will search through the papers for you for the answer. I can only say that my stress level has gone down significantly since I started using Jenny. Check out the free version now at thestrugglingscientist.com slash Jenny. And if you love it, use the code SCIENCE20 for a 20% discount. I think that's another thing that's very different between our experiences. I think that has more to do with our fields uh, than the kind of geographical difference. But it's very common for us to have meetings with our supervisor uh once every two weeks where we sit down and we will go especially during like the dissertation writing process i sit down with my supervisor and an entire committee and we go line by line paragraph by paragraph and we go through my manuscript and they kind of ask me about how i'm integrating particular theoretical models and um how i'm planning to write this other chapter and so it's a lot more hands-on and that's the level of hands-on I get. And my supervisor is actually super hands-off. Mm -hmm. Like that's the hands-off extent. And mm -hmm. yours was, I think, similar to Yoa, right? Yeah, no, my supervisor very much. Even in my master's, like I got to do my own project and I got to pick my own project. And I remember, you know, starting out, I was like, oh, I want to do something to do with like sort of smoking cessation. And then literally halfway through my first year of my master's, I was like, no, actually I want to do sedentary behavior. And I was just allowed to switch. And then, you know, I think it has its caveats too. Like on one hand, you get to, I think, really explore the research process on your own and kind of come to something, um, just kind of like in your own self-guided learning experience. On the other hand, you're a master's student and you don't really know what you're doing. So like, you kind of have to figure it out as you go too. My question for you though was, is there still a defense for the master's students to get their degree? Um, they have to write a thesis in mm -hmm. the end, but that's more like a literature review that they have to write. 
okay. and then they I don't think they even present that. They do have to have presentations for us, basically, in the lab. Yeah. But um, yeah, no, no real defenses, no. Wow, that's so interesting. That feels so much less stressful because yeah. on our end, we do, and I think now that the productivity requirements are kind of going up and up and up, it's not uncommon for master's students to publish two things from their master's thesis mm -hmm. and they have a defense. Mm -hmm. And again, but that's also because we're in health side. Yeah, it could be like, that too. Yeah. Sorry, I was gonna say, how often do you guys, or I guess what is the expectation for publications where you are? For the PhD? So during the master, we don't have any publications. I mean, you're lucky if you're somewhere on a paper, maybe. But wow. during the PhD, you have to have, the rules just actually changed. You have to have two papers uh, out there already, like fully, fully. Um, yeah. published but it's it's very different i think for doing the lab kind of research that we do because we're often four years doing experiments just to publish one paper that's very very common yep yeah, yeah. and i don't know super a lot about your research but are you working specifically with like the chemical stuff or do you ever work with like biological samples or animal models or yeah anything like definitely that? you want to answer yeah, yeah i can uh so i have a mouse model uh but i also work with uh, cells as well right because i remember when the covid pandemic started and i knew uh some people who were doing pharmacological research and they were doing mouse models and um they had to call all of their animals and uh for our listeners calling is a um very sensitive word for murder <laughs> <laughs> and and so and they had to get rid of all of their animals because campuses were cl closing down buildings were closing down you couldn't go like you couldn't maintain your animals anymore mm. couldn't feed them and so people's like you know a year two years of work was basically like yeah, how long gone because they were doing a lot of them were doing behavioral stuff so you needed to like train the animal and so i'm just wondering like how did the covid 19 pandemic affect your research so we were allowed to finish the mouse studies that were already ongoing um but i think in the end we were six weeks or something at home in total give or take that yeah like full-time lockdown only at home uh, and then after that, we were slowly allowed to work a little bit in the lab again, but like spread it out as much as possible over the hours in the day and work in the weekends and everything. But we really cannot do that much at home. There's there's not a lot you can do. So. <laughs> you take the mice home? <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. Jerome, one, two, three, you're coming home. <laughs> It's not allowed to, according to the regulations. <laughs> Genetically modified mice are not allowed to go home. <laughs> <laughs> like, like Jurassic Park, but like with mice. <laughs> They're like glowing in the dark for some reason. Oh, I would love to have glow in the dark pets, though. <laughs> but that's a side you note. Can... Okay, maybe you can tell me, what is it that you can do with bunnies that they become glow in the dark? Or is that like an urban mess? I mean, it should be possible, theoretically, yeah. but I've never seen it being done. I think you have to go to China or something to make that happen. <laughs> <laughs> no, I swear they made they like manipulated some. I know they've done that with like zebra fish. Yeah, but fish do it a lot. Or, yeah, yeah. Fish are the OGs. <laughs> <laughs> 
Anyway, I feel like you're getting a little bit off topic. Here. So, <laughs> so fish aside, mice aside, mice aside. Um, what about stuff to do with like how you guys are treated as um, students? Like, are you are they hurting you? Toys for yes. Are you guys considered employees? Are you guys considered like just students? Or like, how does that work? Uh, yeah, I can maybe take this one. So we are just essentially employees. We get paid and everything, so that's nice. Uh, but for some things outside of the university, we are technically still students. For for example, our housing, that's very nice. Um, <laughs> so I can't complain about that. Uh, yeah, do you want to talk a little bit more about the... Yeah, yeah. so we are official employees from the Amsterdam University Medical Center. So that's the hospital in Amsterdam. Uh, but our PhD is then organized via the University of Amsterdam, which is sometimes a bit weird. Uh, and our also PhD diploma will be via the University of Amsterdam. Um, but in the end, it doesn't matter so much because we are protected by the national, say, AO. It's called for Dutch universities. Um, we found on Google that this is called a collective labor agreement <laughs> oh, in yeah. English. Union. Union. Union, <laughs> yes. Uh, so that sort of writes down what PhDers are supposed to make. Um, and that's quite universally agreed upon in the Netherlands that PhD students should be paid. I don't I don't know any PhD students that get, get paid less than that. Um, but there are quite some different CAOs out there. For, for example, by companies, it's a little bit different than for um, where we are at. Um, and I think the biggest difference really is that we are employees. So we also get the protections of employees, basically. A first year is a trial period. And then the PI can still fire you without consequence really <laughs> but after that it becomes really a bit harder for him or her uh, and then they have to jump to some uh, administrative hoops to fire you um, yeah so they really gotta want to get you out of there <laughs> yeah <laughs> and then it's usually three or four years that your phd lasts and then at the end the contract just ends or you need an extension of course but we also get things like pregnancy leave and um things like that that are i think think a lot less common in other parts of the world yeah and this is your employment contract tied to doing specific work outside of your quote-unquote phd program like taing or mentoring know. students yeah that's really really quite different in different universities so jaron does have some some teaching that he has to do but only a couple of hours a year really not a lot um yeah. and honestly mentoring students like i'm doing that's voluntary basically <laughs> i like doing that so that's why i do it but there are definitely also some universities that have a minimal required amount of teaching that you have to do but it's definitely not not a lot yeah 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 that's interesting. Uh, sorry go ahead uh for me specifically i'm a shared phd student between the amsterdam uh umc sorry the sorry the uh, amc and the vumc which is a, the other medical center in the amsterdam uh so because i'm shared between the medical biochemistry department and the physiology department for the physiology department, I do have to help with teaching, but from the medical biochemistry department, not. So it's sort of awkward like that. But, yeah. but you don't right. really get paid for the teaching. No. It's just something that they ask you to do. Well, ask. Right. They sort of just tell me, like, by the way, next month. <laughs> <laughs> by the way, it's kind of more attention that you have not done this yet. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's really interesting because the way we are definitely, um, although we technically sign an employment contract, um, it is very much lip service. Uh, we are considered students and uh, we also have a union that protects us, but 
they don't do much. You only get it if you TA. And so here's the crazy bit about Canada, at least, is that we have a union that protects students, quote unquote, um, but only if you're acting as a teaching assistant, which as part of your stipend, as part of your funding package, is mandatory. Um, is, is, is guaranteed, I guess is the better word for it. It's guaranteed. Yes, they don't but have to pay you. They just yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But then, you. but then like, it's kind of like this. It's written into your contract. And so if you say, hey, I can't TA or I have to turn down this TA ship, they will take the money out of your guaranteed funding package, mm-hmm. right? So it's like, guaranteed but it's also like very much mandatory if you want to make enough money to like live Mm -hmm. and you also if you don't end up TAing you also don't get to be part of the union either and so you're kind of just on your own in that regard and you know there's been a lot of instances that I've heard of um, and we've heard of where students who uh, are kind of in their in their when they're in the master's or PhD program are kind of at the mercy of their PI and if their PI wants to like take advantage of them in terms of getting them to do certain work or getting to work kind of irregular hours or even taking their intellectual property potentially um, if they want to like move it somewhere. Like we really don't have a lot of power in that regard. And I think that that's a big difference. Yeah. A lot of things like vacation time is not written into our contracts. And so especially for uh, students who are working with animal models and who are doing lab work, um, most of them don't get a Christmas vacation. And if you kind of have the least seniority, like you're the one who's maintaining the animals during the Christmas break while everybody else goes and like spends time with their families. Um, And RTA ships tend to vary drastically. So your TA ship could be like teaching a tutorial um, where you're just like helping people kind of for an hour to, you know, acquire the material better. Um, and then there's TA shows where the person teaching the course is like, sweet, I have a TA. You can teach the course. Yeah. <laughs> and so you're like in your master's and you have to do like four or five, six lectures on a material, all material that's like probably not aligning mm-hmm. with your research. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I have to say, though, the power of PIs is also still quite strong um, here in the end when it comes to papers and authorships and like things those those struggles also still exist uh, in the Netherlands uh, very much and I mean working off hours is also still the same you don't get paid extra for the extra hours you make but it's still very much expected without like anything basically right and um yeah holidays are are difficult sometimes <laughs> when it comes to research and like planning that uh, but officially we do get 24 days a year Twenty. I know, right? Our, fac- our faculty doesn't get that much. <laughs> our faculty doesn't get twenty-four days. Oh my goodness! Yes. So research. I just want. <laughs> yeah, seriously, gotta go to the gotta go to the Netherlands. Oh my god, that sounds that sounds so good. Yeah, vacation. And yeah, the twenty-four so I... days is sort of in our contract, and uh, yeah, but we quite often have to work in the weekends, but then we're allowed to sort of. In theory, make that up by taking a day off on another day. Suzanne, I can't remember the last time I didn't work. Okay, I'll, 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 I'll tell you folks a story. When we got <laughs> married, um, I, I told my supervisor, I'm sorry, but I'm going to take three days off when we got married. There is a picture of us doing our like wedding photo shoot, and I'm wearing my wedding dress. I'm in full makeup. 
And I'm just responding to an email on my phone. And I was like, yeah, I have data. I can actually respond to an email. And that is the most like surreal thing. Yeah, it's very much academic thing. Um, I want to go back to something that you had said, though, because you had said that, you know, PIs have a lot of power in terms of authorship and whatnot. And I know that it does obviously vary between supervisor to supervisor. Mm, definitely. But at least in my experience, it has been that as the student, if you're doing the research, the experiment, whatever it is, and you're writing the paper, you are first author. Yes. Is that still the same way it is there? Yes, okay. yes, okay. yes. Uh, usually a PhD student. Okay, okay. Yeah, because I wasn't sure. I, I've also heard, you know, horror stories where the student does all the work, but the supervisor still ends up taking first authorship oh, or no, 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 first no, no. authorship. Yeah. No. <laughs> no, okay. They, usually, well, want, I mean, they usually want last author, so that, that's usually fine. Um, yeah. But I have to say, I, I have heard horror stories also about like people just putting a, put a second first while they did not really a lot for the paper just because they need it mm -hmm. or like, yeah. Sometimes yeah, postdocs can, can also be difficult. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I see that, a seniority thing. I know that um, in some labs here, one of the more controversial things, I suppose, is that if you work in a lab or you work in a, a group that publishes a lot, everyone goes on every person's paper. And so it doesn't really matter the extent of the work that they've done. They just get that authorship because it's you know, beneficial for their career. Mm -hmm. And like as a supervisor, you're not really losing out because you're still on the paper. Your students are getting publications, which is making them more competitive for scholarships. It just feels like from an academic integrity sort of perspective, kind of dirty, you know? Yeah, yeah we don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> you guys are moral but, but also very I, much depends on the group yes yeah and i think the reason i kind of hate that and i don't hate it but i have very complicated feelings about it because i'm very much like if you help me on this paper and that's kind of the thing that helped me get it over the finish line like you're going on that paper like i love you and i want to help you out but at the same time from my doctoral experience we don't have a lab with critical qualitative researchers, generally speaking, even if a supervisor has multiple students, their work is so theoretically different that we normally are not on each other's papers. And it's very common um, in my field to have single author publications or at most three authors, but that's kind of, journals are already like, hmm, mm, this is kind of fishy. Yeah, like how many, how many authors, what can they actually be doing? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so I feel like there's this entire opportunity that like, I got cheated out of mm -hmm. uh, just based on um, the field that I, that I ended up in. But at the same time, I'm in health science. And so I'm held to the same standards of publishing mm -hmm. as other health science students. Uh, the struggles, I guess you could say. The struggles. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think for us, we usually have a lot of names on the papers. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes just one experiment that somebody did and that already makes them like enough to go on the paper. Um, but I have to say also our group is very different because we work together like every day and we see each other every day and we're real colleagues. So for example, if I would take the example of uh, the wedding, my group would be at my wedding because I love them. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I hope yeah. that my PI then doesn't email me when he's at my wedding drinking so <laughs> i wouldn't <put> that <laughs> no, exactly <laughs> this is the rosé you went with <laughs> <laughs> or it's just like he's got like cages and it's like all right 
in our defense we got married during covid so our capacity was oh, 10 yeah. people yeah, yeah so yeah. we had literally photographer and like family yeah our family the like there. the bare bones of the families i can imagine <laughs> that yes yeah. yeah one of the things i think just going back a bit to when we were talking about you know work expectations and hours and whatnot i think one of the big questions that i'm sure a lot of people are wondering is What's the difference in pay between, you know, where you guys are and where we're at for the same degree? Yeah. We calculated it. We have numbers. <laughs> <laughs> like in Canadian? They did math. They're, they're STEM, so they would be better at this than us. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no promises, no promises. We had, to, we had to recalculate it to Canadian dollars, too. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> Basically, what it would... We start out with about... 34,000 euros per year uh, as sort of first year PhD students. And that should be, if our calculations are correct, 49,000 Canadian dollars. What oh. the heck? <laughs> yes. And that slowly goes up during your PhD period of usually four years. And it goes up to 43,000 euros or 62,000 Canadian dollars. Okay. To, to, oh. give, you, to give you a benchmark. Um, so... That's more money than I make our, as a postdoc. <laughs> no, no, no. But our most competitive postdoctoral fellowship in the country, we're talking about like top like half a percent, sure. like, like is basically the same amount after tax. Yeah. It's, it's the same amount. Uh, but this, 70, is before, this, this is before, before tax. So taxes still need to go off for that. Okay. Okay. But even so, like like the, the standard sort of, I don't think someone say standard, but a very competitive national scholarship for us is still you know easily 40. 15 20 grand less than yeah. what you guys make in your yeah, yeah. Year. our doctoral um stipend is my guaranteed stipend is twenty thousand dollars canadian ouch yeah. and it does it doesn't go up oh and if you get a scholarship by the way if you get a scholarship it does go up but not by the amount of the scholarship so for example if you get a fifteen thousand dollar scholarship and you're making twenty thousand dollars you're like oh okay sweet 35k except University's like, oh wow, good job, you did it. So I start clapping, give you a pat on the back. And then as they give you a pat on the back, they take away eight thousand dollars from your pocket. Mm. <laughs> so, so, you don't need this anymore. Yeah, so a fifty thousand dollar scholarship is actually worth only seven and a half thousand dollars. And then if you are fortunate enough to get a national scholarship, which again is incredibly competitive. Super good. Like two people from the university get it every year. Well, the two people from your department in the university get it. Well, your faculty. Your faculty. Yeah. your faculty um then they take all of your funding away and that scholarship is thirty-five thousand dollars yeah. canadian and they just take your funding away so you're like i work so hard yeah. to get this money and i only yeah. increase my income by 15 grand and plus because you're no longer working as part of the union because you don't longer ta because you take away all your funding you don't get the benefits of being in the union either and so it's like this weird thing where it's like yes we want our best and brightest to like apply for these scholarships and get them but also when they do, they're going to lose out on some health insurance and benefits. And also yeah. they're not going to get the opportunity to do these professional development through like TAing and through. Oh. It's, yes. it's kind of, yeah, it's kind of crummy that way, which is ultimately ironic considering that Canada actually pays faculty one of the best rates in the world. I think that's why they pay faculty <laughs> yeah. one of the best rates. No, I think our middle management is just so bloated that people just get paid a bunch, yeah. Yeah, so I have to say, though, 
RPI have to pay the AMC basically twice as much a month to have us because there goes a lot into like insurances and things like that. So it is quite expensive for RPI to have PhD students. So that makes it a bit more difficult, I guess, because our grants are also usually not as large as they are in a, well, what we hear like America and like where uh, like things like that. So I I'm not sure if it's I mean, I really like getting paid, but it's also it's a bit <laughs> difficult. <laughs> I'm going to be clear. I love getting paid. I love money. Yes. <laughs> um, but yeah. So, uh, so, Suzanne, in your opinion then, is it harder to get into a PhD program or is it, is it very difficult for a master's to get into a PhD program? Well, you have to apply. So usually the PI already has a grant. You can write your own grants, but those are very, very few and far between. Um, so usually the PI already has the grant, they can hire a PhD student for that. And then you just go to job interviews and the PI chooses whoever they like best. So wow. that's, I think, very different. And I mean, I struggled with that quite, quite a while. I was, uh, uh, I think quite almost a year, I think interviewing before I got the position that I'm at now. I'm really glad that I got this one and not some of the other ones, but Mm. <laughs> <laughs> After hearing the stories from those PhD students that were hired there, <laughs> I hear some confessions. <laughs> yeah, no. So it's really more of a job interview, and then you're applying, and you're you're looking at all these um, facultudes. How do you call that in English? Vacancies. Vacancies. Um, and seeing which research you like, but you don't get to decide what you work on really because you're working on a project of your PI. So you're just applying for that project that they got the grant on or that they like to do. Mm. So it's a bit less that you are working on your own thing maybe, but then during the four years, you, you don't only work on one thing. So you sometimes you can sort of mm -hmm. spread out a bit. Right, right. I think about that a lot actually in terms of like what you are working on and what you're expected to work on. Like I know my own PhD, I, again, like my master's, I had a lot of liberty and what I could choose. And it was really up to me to come up with a research program and what I wanted my next, you know, four years to look like. And at the same time, uh, you know, Anna and I both have gotten to be on so many sort of interdisciplinary projects that admittedly we've like found for ourselves, but we were, you know, we had the time and the opportunity to do so. And I wonder too, like on one hand, we don't get paid for that stuff, right? Like we're, mm -hmm. we're basically just freelancing for all these different people for free. But on the other hand, it's an incredible experience to be able to, like, it looks good to be able to do that much kind of interdisciplinary work, to network like that. Um, and so I guess there's pros and cons that way. Yeah, like, I think during my PhD, I probably collaborated with like five or six faculty members um, on various projects and got to do like learn different methodologies mm -hmm. and get introduced to different uh, fields. But in terms of, I think, what the expectation was for my research during my doctorate was that I just work on my project. Mm -hmm. And I think I was a little bit different because I came in and I knew off the bat what my project was going to be, what the methodology was going to be. I was, I like, in my head, I had a proposal. Like, I knew exactly um, what was going to happen. And I think, like, during the first year of a PhD, most people... They have a general idea and they kind of use that year to really refine that idea and decide on the methodology and decide on um, a population. So my experience was slightly different. <laughs> yeah. That being said, though, there are definitely people that we know that have been like are in the sixth and seventh year of their PhD. And so like, I think there's 
uh, an extreme that you can take that to where, you know, I think you have a friend who's in her third year now or fourth year and she still hasn't done comps. Do you guys have comps or candidacy exams? Nope. Nope. No? Okay. You guys don't get to be called PhD C's? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> I have no clue yeah. what that is. <laughs> oh, okay. So, that's no, so, that, so that actually, and I will confirm, there are also fields in Canada that don't have candidacy exams. Oh, okay. And most STEM fields don't have it. Oh. Because I think the assumption is if you didn't know what you were doing, you'd get fired by this point. <laughs> <laughs> so essentially, a candidacy exam or a comprehensive exam is usually done in your second year or before your second year and essentially involves you having um, demonstrating that you have the background within your proposed field of research that you can continue and so usually how it works for me anyway was i picked a topic a research topic and there were sort of three major pillars of knowledge to this topic and then i would go in and i would um, i got to pick my readings but some people don't get to pick their readings so you have all these readings for these different pillars and you have to you have a month or so to basically like know them inside out. And so then when the day comes of your comprehensive exam, you first have a written exam where you have basically five or six hours. You're put in a room and you just write about these like your your committee comes up with these questions. And so you write about these questions. Usually there's six. You pick three. You write about them. And then if you pass that, which I think is like a 70, then you go down to your oral comprehensive, which is where they, your panel interviews you and they're like, okay, they'll usually ask you the other three questions you didn't answer. And then essentially that's supposed to demonstrate to them uh, and to your supervisor that you have enough knowledge to kind of stay in the program. It is the case that if you don't pass, oftentimes you're given, you know, kind of a makeup or something you can do, but if you don't pass and you really don't pass, you actually don't get to continue your PhD. Oh, wow. And yeah, and so that's kind of a big difference, I think. Which is funny because my experience was like, here, write these two papers and then go through a defense. And so, like, it was super funny because I defended my master's late. Like, I was already in my doctoral program by the time I got to defending my master's. And then, not six months later, I had to defend defend my candidacy, which was <laughs> in volume writing another master's thesis and going through like a very yeah. similar defense process. And I was like. By the time I get to my doctoral defense, I'm going to walk, like, waltz in there and be like, I'm done. I don't care. Oh. I'm just going to be swearing during the presentation. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's pretty different. We just have the defense at the end of the four. Well, four. It's usually way longer than that, but. <laughs> Good to know. Yes. It, it, and for us also, our research, we do tend to set up collaborations but it always is very dependent on where our experiments go because you might start in a project and try to find what a, what a specific protein does but then if it ends up to being something with lipids then you do lipids and if it ends up something being with something completely <laughs> else then you do that so yeah yeah so i think that actually leads me into my like next question which is if you're being given kind of a, a really narrow or more limited topic of what you actually are going to be researching what do your job opportunities look like after grad school like do you tend to stick with the thing you were studying you get a bit more liberty and like okay now i want to try and study something else somewhere else industry academia like how does that look um at least for so i i mostly know people who finished their phds and immediately went to postdocs um mm -hmm. specifically at our department so for example there's someone who switched 
from essentially dermatology now to medical biochemistry. So very that, different. Yeah. Very different. So, um, yeah, it really just depends. You can sort of pivot quite a bit, uh, at least in terms of academia, to what your postdoc position is, mostly because there aren't that many postdoc positions, I guess, uh, even depending on how specialized you are, of course. Um, so oftentimes you might have to pivot. And I think Suzanne also saw some postdoc presentations where like, they have nothing to do with our field, but they're one of the best candidates. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair enough. And for, I think for switching to a company, it's way more about the things you've learned, like the skills and not necessarily about what your topic of research was. So it's way more important that you have project management skills and that you can hold mm -hmm. presentations and that you can sell yourself than, than really that you were working on cholesterol. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's really interesting because uh, at least over here, even as I was doing my PhD, my supervisor and a lot of my colleagues, including Yoa, um, were telling me, well, what you research in your PhD is going to be the thing that you build your entire career on. You might deviate from that topic later on in your career, but this is going to be your thing. You are the expert. And now that I'm getting to the end of my PhD, I see postdocs that have gone from like childhood physical activity to geography. Yeah. yeah. Like from their doctorate to their postdoc. <laughs> and I, I think for us, like that idea that you become an expert in this like really small sliver of academic knowledge and you stick to it, I think it's fading. Yeah. Interdisciplinary, interdisciplinary research is becoming the new hot thing. It's so hot right now. So hot right now. <laughs> so hot right now. Um, and so I think there's similarly um, to how industry functions, I think there's a lot more emphasis on the skills. Yeah. Like definitely. what transferable skills did you get from your PhD. And I'm so grateful for that because I don't want to do my research topic anymore. <laughs> yeah, I mean, my opinion on this has changed dramatically as well. Like, I think now not just having the multidisciplinary sort of knowledge, but also the skills that come with that and the network that comes with that, right? Like universities, when they're looking for faculty positions, at least in Canada, where we've been looking, it's like, we don't just want you to know this one thing. It's like expertise in this and this and this. And these methodologies and be able to teach these courses and like i don't think that that's necessarily possible or it's going to be a lot harder if you just take a very narrow lens to you know your phd research and then your postdoc right and so for me personally like i've taken my phd and the stuff i've learned from it and now that acts as very much a foundation for the research that i want to be doing um, which is more digital focused right and so but even within that it's like i'm not just sticking to the sort of outcomes I did in my PhD, I'm like exploring different things. And, you know, with Anna even getting into a bit of the social side of things, which I think is really cool. And so uh, I really do think that there's this shift that's happening, at least in, you know, Canadian academia, where we're moving away from people being these really strong, solid experts in one particular thing, like a super, super niche field, mm -hmm. and instead being like, well, People need to be able to know their stuff, but also collaborate and see how that fits in the larger sort of jigsaw of, of the field. Yeah, I think honestly, for for the postdocs that I've seen come by in our group and where we're applying, you don't even have to really know the subject yet. You just need to show that <laughs> you are a researcher, you have some skills in the lab, because of course it's a very hands-on thing, right? You You need yeah. to have actual need to be handy basically if you have two left hand don't don't come to the left yeah. that's don't that's drop the chloroform do you guys know what the red green show is 
No. Okay, it's a Canadian show. It's like it's so it's a Canadian classic. But basically, there's this one line in it. It's like if the women don't find you handsome, they should at least find you handy. And so, <laughs> yeah. so but I was laughing because like that is the best job posting on like Indeed. Must be kind of a scientist. Must have some skills. Must be handy. <laughs> You're like you want a postdoc. You want someone to fix your plumbing. Oh uh, yeah, but sometimes you also see these people come by for a job interview and then they they are so bad. Really? What makes someone a bad scientist in your mind? Well, you shouldn't start explaining like the most basic procedure that we have in the lab. Like you just discovered the next big thing, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And then that's the entire thing that you did during your internship. You sequenced something. I mean. (laughs) Yeah, I still remember a presentation at a certain point where it's like, Yes, this is called a volcano plot because it looks like a volcano. It's like, ah, oh, yeah. <laughs> did you mention it? Groundbreaking. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, that's that's the kind of people you get sometimes. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Fair enough. Amazing. So, what's the plan for you guys? Like, you're coming to the end of your PhDs now, and is industry the goal? Is academia the goal? Like, how realistic are both? Uh, I want to get out of academia relatively quickly. Yeah, we established that early on. <laughs> Suzanne really likes it so much that we did an entire episode about it. Yeah, I really <laughs> love the PhD. Yeah, I, I am still thinking about doing at least a postdoc. Yeah. So Suzanne, what is it going to take for you to be competitive for academia in the Netherlands or in Europe? Uh, well, if you actually want to become a PI, which is really not very easy, it's really, really difficult. It takes a lot. You you have to have uh, high impact papers. You need to do things outside of your research, like be interested in scientific outreach, that kind of thing, or organizing things. You just you need to be in the top ten percent, um, and that's really quite hard. I'm not really sure if I'm interested in that whole track, basically. Mm-hmm. So, um, What's the alternative then? Uh, well, switch to uh to uh, to um. Uh, What's it called? A company. <laughs> a company or something yeah. like that. When we also have some postdocs that are planning on staying postdocs forever, but... Oh, no. I mean, actually, okay, hold on. How much do postdocs get paid <laughs> where you are? Well, it's one step higher than the PhD. So it's, again, like, it goes up every year. Oh, man, I should have done my postdoc in Europe. I know. Let's <laughs> ship the dogs over. You get 24 <laughs> vacations a day a year. <laughs> what? I think that's like mat leave for some people. Yeah, I know. If you're also, lucky. I will I will mention this because we mentioned it a couple times, but I, I won't clarify. Canada is very different than the states, like mm. like tremendously different. Like, I would say it would be like saying like, oh yeah, Morocco is really close to like Italy. We're kind of like the same thing, right? It's like it's very different. Um, and so we're like way more chill. <laughs> I, 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 but even within the states, I think because they have um private post-secondary institutions versus in canada I, i'm pretty sure they're all public yeah. or at least for the most part the major ones are all public and so because of that i think our model for funding is very different than in the states for both pis and students wait i think that was a complete lie i think all of ours are private our colleges are public oh right 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 yeah we're like, completely we're, lying. no but we're, we're they're partially publicly funded <laughs> yeah no they are if you're u of t yeah, because the government sends like gives scholarships and stuff, and they also to individuals, not institutions. But, 
Anyway, anyway, obviously we don't know anything about this. <laughs> yes, I have to say also, if you wanna if you wanna come, become a professor or a PI, it is highly recommended to go abroad. And for example, going to America or mm. like really really the other side of the world is quite um yeah looked upon quite highly, I guess. Yeah. That you have been also been able to survive in that environment, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. what is it about America that's so appealing because we live near the border and it's it doesn't not look good. Yeah, I would not. <laughs> it doesn't look place. good. Me with binoculars. Yeah, still looks like a dumpster fire. <laughs> yeah, it also doesn't look good from this side. I have to tell you. But... <laughs> okay, 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 yeah. <laughs> the thing is that there's just a lot more money for research, and that the research that's being done there is just a bit more high impact because there's more money. Right. I think so. I've been told about this, and I haven't experienced myself, so I can't speak how true this totally is. But for a lot of really research-heavy institutions in the states, there is a lot of money, but a lot of insecurity as well because your salary is based on whether you can get these grants, get these, you yeah. know, these, these really big things. And if you can't, you're essentially not making any money, and so your research suffers, your students suffer, things like that. So I think it's high risk, high reward. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, for us, I think the professors are, when you become a professor, you are an official, like, permanent fixture. Tenure track. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you don't get the grants, you don't have people. And the people are also not working for free here. So you just don't have people. So we have, for example, a couple of people who are uh, scientists with a permanent, permanent um, Contract. contract. And they don't have a group anymore, so they just they just right now. When you want to hire somebody, you need to already sort of have the money for the four years. Otherwise, you cannot hire somebody. Or we just right. keep grabbing master students in six months. <laughs> <so they're> like, <laughs> <laughs> the Ponzi scheme continues. Well, I thought that's what they did in Canada. I mean, <laughs> throwing bodies on the machine like something will stick. Yeah, yeah. There's still a lot of pressure to get the grants and to to get the money because otherwise you don't have a group. Well, I don't know. How are you guys with um, student loans? Uh, oh, student loans. Um, it varies by province. And so we have, so for example, when my loans are from Ontario and they accumulated during my undergraduate studies. And so during my master's and my PhD, I didn't need to uh, take out loans. And they're just kind of sitting there. Um, and they're sitting there waiting. For Maybe for forgiveness. <laughs> <laughs> for forgiveness. They're, they're waiting for me to finish my studies. And then I'll have like a six month kind of buffer period where I can ask them like, please don't collect interest. And then I have to start paying it back. But it's not like American loans where mm -hmm they will like garnish your wages yeah so yeah. my loans are kind of hefty but my payment a month is we say hefty but at the same time like not like not, american hefty. no like we're not talking like six figures like that's ridiculous no, 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 no. yeah exactly yeah. Like, this is not the supersized uh, loan <laughs> yeah it's a super sized loan <laughs> yeah no it's a very reasonable loan um and my payments Per month will be something that I can handle in a postdoc salary. Mm -hmm. um, and if I want to, I can obviously pay more. And sometimes, usually when some 
government gets reelected or elected for the first time, yeah. they'll forgive a chunk of it. And that happened once, and I'm waiting for it to happen again. <laughs> right? <laughs> oh, that's nice. It's not that different then. Our loans are also by the government, and we do have to pay it back because we are officially employees now, but sort of kind of students. It, it's still a very weird system. Oh, but... so you have to pay it back like in your PhD. Yes, but it is oh. income dependent. So they always calculate a certain percentage of your income. And yeah. if you are after 30 years, you're we're not able to pay it all back. It it just goes away. Interesting. That's amazing. Years, yeah. So just be a bum for 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> you don't you don't even have to try and be a bum. You're just a PhD grad, okay? Like, do you know what the job market looks like? 30 uh, years but later. We get paid. We get paid. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah no. Fun fact: I was actually looking at the University of Amsterdam for postdoctoral fellowships oh. because you folks have a lab that uh, does app studies, and it's a collaborative <laughs> lab with uh, researchers from all over the world, some from University of Toronto, actually. And yeah, I was seriously looking to like go there for my postdoc. Oh, is you going to learn Dutch? Do you guys like do everything in Dutch? Or is uh, it depends where you are, especially in Amsterdam. If I go to a shop in the middle of Amsterdam, I have to speak English because people don't speak uh, Dutch there. Wow. So we, wow. we are so international that we cannot even speak our own language in yep. like social stories. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds perfect for me. Yes. <laughs> and I can I really can't. recommend the Netherlands. It's a lot of fun. And especially Amsterdam because there are so many people from all around the world. Yes. And, so uh, many trunks. Isn't it true though that you are very liberal with your drug policies? Wheat, yes. That's just the not <laughs> correct. Come on over. That's right. <laughs> yeah, with wheat, with wheat, you can just buy it legally, and with everything else, you're allowed to have a certain amount that's not for sale. Hmm. It's actually so we got there with weed mm -hmm. and uh, Toronto has actually, it's on the municipal level. So my home city, uh, you're all not going to be charged with possession anymore. Oh, really? Yeah, unless it's like meth or heroin. At that point, they're just like, yeah. come on. But like some magic mushrooms, they're chill. They're like, hey, just don't it's share. Mushrooms, man. I know, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we can also buy mushrooms legally, I think, right? I have no clue. I don't do drugs. Wink, wink. All right. We, we hear you. Okay. In case your supervisor is listening, like, okay, we got you. We got you. Because <laughs> uh, I actually heard that, like, okay, I'll stop talking. <laughs> <laughs> do you know what I mean? This is another episode that we can do. Okay? <laughs> Help Anna get drugs in Europe. <laughs> well, Europe is quite difficult, but Netherlands, that's possible. I have to say also, uh, for the PhD, back to the actual topic, um, doing a PhD in other in different countries is very 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 different. So we can only speak for the Netherlands, of course. In uh, in uh, I know a friend who did it in um, Scotland and Edinburgh, and she had the same thing that she only gets paid a certain amount that's allocated by her grant, and she had to do uh, courses and everything that we don't have to do. So it's very very different in different countries. Mm -hmm. Definitely, yeah. Overall, it sounds like doing a PhD in both Canada and Europe. Both have their advantages and disadvantages. But guys, after this conversation, which one would you say is better, though? It says you're Canada. <laughs> ah, see, I wrote in the script that they have to say Canada. <laughs> it's because they don't have Bill Nye the science guy. That's exactly what it is. That's, that's the thing that pushes it. <laughs> yeah, okay, I just okay, okay I will give you that. I will give you that. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it was really nice to have you guys on the podcast. 
uh, thank you again for accepting our invitation and doing this. It was so much no fun. No problem. Mm -hmm. Christmas Loved crossovers it. are definitely a success. Um, so if anybody has any questions, you can reach us on via our website, thestrugglingscientist.com or via email address, thestrugglingscientist.hotmail.com. And you can also follow us on social media. Yes, on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook. <laughs> Instagram. Instagram. Yes, that's the one. Instagram. TikTok? <laughs> <laughs> you need TikTok. <laughs> um, yeah. And I uh, hope you guys listen again next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.